Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at building innovative teams, the concept of the pivot and how to manage it appropriately, the next steps in the evolution of Agile, and the Jeff Foxworthy approach to determining if the team you're working on or with is truly innovative. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Gil House, CTO of Paid Services at AOL. In addition to AOL, Gil has held leadership positions at companies that include Bill Me Later, PayPal, and Taxi Magic. At PayPal, Gil served as Director of Development Engineering and Senior Director of Product Development, roles in which he oversaw large development and architecture teams, working on one of the most well-known electronic payment platforms in the world. At Taxi Magic, Gil was SVP of Technology and was responsible for all aspects of technology, including product development, technology strategy, software architecture, and more. In his current role at AOL, Gil is responsible for paid services, development, and engineering. We're pleased to have Gil live in studio with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Gil. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's start things off today talking about the kinds of teams you typically work with, just so listeners have some context. Can you give us a little background on the types of teams you've worked with in your last few jobs, things like team size, location, uh, disciplines, the nature of the products you've been building? Absolutely. It's run the gamut quite a bit. I'll tell you the underlying theme has always been technology. So I work with technology teams that are small technology teams like startups and mm-hmm. also larger ones. Okay. And that's actually how I got into PayPal and eBay. Bill me later, smaller technology team. We grew that and then we were acquired by eBay back in 2008. Okay. Nice. And how about location? All your teams together, dispersed, a little bit of both? Um, all over the place. Okay. Uh, When you have that smaller startup, it's a lot easier to have them in one location. At eBay, which is the owner of PayPal, um, at eBay, we had teams everywhere across the world. So we had teams in Chennai, teams in Baltimore. Baltimore sounds a lot less exotic when you mention Chennai first. Chennai, Baltimore, Scottsdale, San Francisco, Dublin, et cetera. Okay, great. So, So let me ask you about Taxi Magic first, because you had a front row seat to one of the super hot spaces in the last several years, which is the transportation on demand space. So in an industry like that, where there's a lot of disruption taking place, how much do you use the kind of time to market imperative as a way to motivate teams to get things done quickly? Uh, I think that's the main motivator for the team. And what's interesting about this is that when a team is actually using particularly a consumer product like a Taxi Magic or their competitor Uber, mm-hmm. they see what's happening in the market and they want to get something out there first. And so I think there's an advantage, particularly in the taxi space, where we saw what could actually be done. And so you can go to the team and say, this is something that you are competing against. Look at what they're doing. Look at what we possibly can do here. But we have to make sure that we have the critical mass. Sure. So, so one thing that isn't widely known is that Taxi Magic didn't start off as a cab service. So can you talk a little bit about the concept of the pivot and how it applied with Taxi Magic? Yeah, absolutely. So Taxi Magic back in the day, the actual company name is still Ride Charge. Um, it started as a spinoff of Concur, that handles your expenses, billing, etc. The idea was many business travelers, they take cab rides. And they take mm-hmm. cab rides often for work. But that was the part that was very difficult to expense. If you go into a cab even today and you ask for a receipt, except for the big cities, they give you a little card and they say, fill in whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? Which is fine, and hopefully most of us are honest, but big companies, they know that people aren't always. And so it was a really big burden for financial departments to say, 
what's going on here. So said, well, if we can tie into the cab companies using technology like BlackBerry, et cetera, and just have that receipt sent to the actual person and then go over to the finance department, it'll make it easier for them to track. And so the company first started as expense management for cab rides. And to do that, though, they had to tie into the back-end technology for numerous taxi fleets. Once they had done that, because this taxi technology wasn't really built for this, it was built more for booking rides and placing rides, mm -hmm. they had the ability then to build more advanced features. And then the iPhone came out. So the company started back in 2004, 2005, I want to say. Okay. When the iPhone came out, the team said, there's an opportunity here. And interestingly about the pivot, um, and for those that are listening, if, if any of the people that were some of the founders are listening, I know the real story, right? But um, <laughs> it was hard for the team to pivot because at first they said, no, our business model is expenses. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. The rest of the team said, there's this new platform that would allow us to allow, make a consumer be able to book anywhere they are using the same rails that we've done. And so the team actually went off and spent a couple of weeks building something on their own. And that was the beginning of Taxi Magic, which then ultimately became the growth engine for the company for a couple of years. Okay, so it sounds like in that case, you had a team that was bought that was brought in to build product X, and then something changed, and they had the opportunity to kind of turn on a dime and start building product Y. How do you manage the, the kind of um, the conflict that that might cause within teams where all of a sudden they're asked to kind of completely change the direction of what they're asked to work on? Charisma. <laughs> I, I, I give that answer a lot. It's not just charisma, but I think it's kind of a funny answer, and it's not entirely untrue. Sure. Uh, this is the innovator's dilemma, mm -hmm. and it's really interesting to see because I've seen it a couple times now. Right. Um, and what happens is you have a product, and whether or not the product is doing amazingly well or not or even growing, if there's money coming in, it's hard to look away from that money knowing that a pivot could actually mean you lose some of that money for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And so there's a mindset that you have to really get through to people and get people to think differently is the best way of putting it. Um, so there is a lot of the gnawing of teeth. There is a lot of that tension. I think the way of doing it is laying out the strategy and the vision, being a good advocate for that vision, talking about what the challenges would be if you're going to lose 50% of your revenue, you should talk about that. Now, some startups, when you're pivoting, that's a very small number. But for a company that started from nothing, even $100,000 a month might be something that's huge for them. Sure. Right? Um, and then I think it's really just sticking to your guns while being nice, but sticking to your guns about this is what we need to do for the business. Um, at Taxi Magic, I don't know that we were able to successfully pivot entirely, although they're continuing to do that work there. I'm no longer there. Right. Um, but one thing I would add is, building alliances with the people on the team. And it sounds kind of military-esque when I say that, but what I really mean is don't go it alone. Find the people in the, in the business or in technology or sales anywhere that, are, that have a stake in the game mm -hmm. and say, this is why I think we need to do it. Get them on your side. The more people that you have, the easier it is to move the ship. Yep. Okay. And, uh, and yet we, we know you're at AOL now, no longer at Taxi Magic, but one area where it seems like they have had some successes Every cab that I get in these days, no matter if it's a Fairfax County cab, DC County cab, or DC City cab, seems like they're, a lot of their payment systems are Taxi Magic branded. Uh, so yeah. you started even starting with that original technology, which was about uh, taxi cab expensing. It seems like they're they're still kind of finding success in some area, which is maybe not exactly where they thought it would be when the company started. Yeah, exactly, and that was one that was done. Interestingly, because there's two other major vendors. There is Verifone 
and there's also CMT, which is Creative Mobile Technologies. Mm -hmm. If you're in New York, those are the only two that you'll see. For those that go to Manhattan, you can see them. But if you go around the US and even overseas, you'll see those main brands. And we wanted to make Taxi Magic available on their screens. But they were competitors with us too, so they didn't want to do it. And so right. we said, well then fine, we'll build our own. And we did build our own. Um, the hardware business is a very interesting business to go in. Don't go in there thinking it's going to be easy. Right. But we did go in and we built our own. And the good news is we've been able to get a lot of traction because we built it more, uh, I guess, more recently, right? So the technology yeah. that we have in there was a bit better. And so when a taxi fleet inevitably had to upgrade, they would look at the options on the table and they saw that we also had the consumer brand associated with it. And so it was an easier sell for us. It's still hard in cities like Manhattan because there's um, – there's regulation around who can be uh, inside of a taxi cab. Right. Okay. So, so let me ask something that we've talked about a decent bit on the podcast is how innovation happens. And most every guest that has been on the show to this point seems to be in agreement on one thing that it rarely happens in a vacuum and it's hardly ever the work of just one person. So in, in your experience in the product development space, is that something you've seen? Yeah. And I, I actually, and this isn't, I feel bad because you had sent me this before and like I'm about to say this, like I just like the word innovation. Right. Right. And I feel that why I dislike it is I've been in companies where they say we need to be innovative. And I don't feel the word has any tangible meaning in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think what people are saying is we want to be finding the right product market fit for our customers or finding new products that fit that our consumer so that we're growing as a business. Right. And I interpret it now maybe ask me in six months, I might have a different opinion, but I interpret it now as how do you get out of the way of the people in your company that really know what's going on and can really create things? And so when I, when I see the, um, or hear uh, it really happens in a vacuum, mm -hmm. I think it's not that it happens in a vacuum, or, but it doesn't happen without having leaders that are enabling people to try things. And I've seen that in a lot of places where there's a, a, a great engineer, he's got a really great idea, wants to do something, mm -hmm. isn't a enabled to do it, isn't allowed to do it, doesn't know how to get it done. Right. And when he brings the idea up, you'll hear things like, it's a really great idea. We probably should do it, but we have so many other things on our plate. Let's not do it. Mm -hmm. And that's how that innovation gets stifled. If instead it's like, well, how can I help you make that happen? How can we do this other work too and make, allow you to experiment? Right. Then you start to see that innovation occur. There's one other piece to innovation, which is interesting. And I think this is, um, and I experience this on a regular basis, just in my role, wherever I go, fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And I think fear of failure also is what stifles innovation. And I don't think we talk about it enough. So we, we, it's easy for us to go and say, well, the problem is we don't have the right leader in the room, which probably is true. Uh, we don't have the right environment for innovation. But we focus all of our effort on what are the tools? How do we brainstorm? Do we do lean? We don't talk about what will happen when the product that you spend two months on does not work. Are you going to applaud? Well, that fantastic. Thank you for trying to make something for this company. Or Will that person be concerned about their job or their bonus? Because if it's the latter, mm -hmm. you'll never have people creating innovative products. Yeah. Okay. Great. And let me let me ask you about something you mentioned in that in that uh, answer, which was the concept of product market fit. Mm -hmm. What is that concept, and how do you kind of validate that there is that product market fit before you start to build something? Yeah, there are a lot of schools of thought on this one. I will tell you, like very simply, how I feel about this. Okay. If your consumers don't want or use the product that you've just created mm -hmm. or the features of that product, you don't have that fit. Right. And why? Why I think it's so important that we mention product market fit is often we think inside of a business that we're the consumer, and we're not. And so what's what you have to do is you have to get things early 
into customers' hands mm -hmm. and actually watch them use it. If it's a mobile device, using tools like Flurry or Artisan, et cetera, so you can actually see, or Omniture, see how people are reacting to that, that product. It's a website, there's a variety of other tools that you can use. But that's what you should be looking for and looking early. Um, We've all been in environments where we've come up with a very innovative idea, and we spend a year and a half building it, yeah. and then we release it, and people are like, nobody wants it. Even though you went to 76 customer survey or customer council meetings, and you asked people, what would you want to see? I'd want to see this. They still don't want to use it. And I think of the Henry Ford quote, which we've overused at AOL recently, but it's, he said, um, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and many ways to, uh, to to test those ideas out. I remember from a local meetup, somebody at Taxi Magic was presenting, not sure if you were still there at the time or not, but they would literally go to Whole Foods because they, they could find uh, a large amount of taxi drivers on their lunch breaks and put concepts in front of them and, and do kind of user testing right there on the spot. And yep, that or the different, their, their garages as well where the taxi drivers will go, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> so we've talked a little bit about your past. Let me ask about your current position at AOL, where you're CTO of paid services. Uh, what are the paid services at AOL these days, and is there anything you and your team are working on that you're really excited about? Yeah, there, there's a lot that uh, we're working on that I'm excited about. What I, I feel like I have to do, and I've realized this now being on the other side of AOL, is explain to people what AOL is doing even these days. Sure. Because when I was even interviewing, and the, the recruiter said, and the job is at AOL, I remember myself saying, Huh. I kind of know they're around, but what are they doing? What is this? Yeah. So, so what are they doing? So what are they doing? Um, <laughs> there are three main business models for AOL. I'm going to start with two of them and then come back to the one that everyone remembers. Mm -hmm. um, so the first is our advertising business. We call it Platforms Now. So we're one of the largest advertising businesses on the planet, online, programmatic, whether it's video, whether it's display, content, etc. We have a variety of platforms that we offer. We have a marketplace for it. We um, enable small and large firms to really get the most value for their money in front of, of customers. And this is a growing business for us, including full attribution all the way down the life cycle. Mm -hmm. And we spent the past five years building this. And we've done it quietly, but you see more and more press about what we're accomplishing there. And I don't know enough people know about that. That makes us a real media business in that sense. Mm -hmm. And then we have our brands. And the brands like Huffington Post, TechCrunch, and Gadget, etc. These are big brands that tie closely into the advertising. You can kind of see how they fit together. People don't recognize that we have these huge brands, and even AOL.com, where people can go for news, for content, for mail, etc. These still exist. Mm -hmm. And those are two of our pillars. Okay. The third pillar is what we call membership. Membership is made up of paid services and communications. Communications is mail. It's the desktop client, and there's newer versions of that people are still use. Mm -hmm. um, and then AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. And those are standalone businesses. People recognize those. Many people still use those today. And then you have paid services. Paid services is what was once the dial-up business, mm -hmm. and there are still people that use dial-up, but we've transitioned that business to be more of a subscription and value-added services business. Based on the money that you want to pay per month, you can get things like LifeLock, private Wi-Fi, AOL One Point, AARP, a variety of services where you, that are bundled at a discount to the consumer because we buy them in bulk, and you just pay one fee per month. And so now what's going on is we have a business model, and a subscription business model is a really good model to have. We have a business that's offering really good value to consumers. The challenge that we face is how do we get the word out about what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And 
about the exciting things that we're working on, many of the products that we have are now mobile or going mobile. We're changing the way that we do work entirely and have over the past year to be a more continuously integrated and deployable company. Mm -hmm. We're moving to Agile. We have a lot of lean successes. Now it's really just the PR and getting some of those new products, which I can talk about in the near future, getting those products in people's hands. Sure. So so we're talking about building innovative teams. Walk us through a day in the life of Gill House. The teams that you're working with are... Or uh, how many you have daily stand-up meetings with them? You have daily stand-up meetings with your senior executive team. What's a, what, what's a, a Gill House team look like at AOL? Gill House team, yeah. <laughs> we, we are headquartered in New York, so there are some days where it looks like me getting up early, early and heading to Union Station. Um, <laughs> so the, we've, we've spent the last year really working on the way that we are organized mm-hmm. to enable this kind of culture. What we did is we changed the concept of QA. And I know I, this, I think, ties really heavily into innovation. Mm-hmm. In a lot of companies and also at AOL before, we had QA and we had development. Development finished the work. They finish it on time at 7 p.m., the day it's due. They hand it over to QA that gets stuck there until 2 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. finds five bugs, gives it back to the engineer the next morning, and we're, we're late for releasing. So the first thing that we did is we changed that structure and said, everyone is an engineer, and we brought the right training in for people. We no longer have a separate QA task. You write your code, you write your automation, you write the work you need, or the the automation you need behind that Mm -hmm. to make sure that what you're delivering is quality. And that changed the mentality quite a bit, which enabled people to move more quickly. They don't have to worry about there being a test, et cetera. But it also forced them to solve some major problems. How do we automatically test some of these things? If we're not going to any longer go hire or use contractors for manual testing, we have to change fundamentally how we do work. Mm -hmm. And doing that enabled us to move more quickly in a lot of ways to be more innovative. We also changed the organizational structure. So not only did we take away there being a QA and dev team, the individual teams that are doing the work, the manager for those people is not giving them the daily work. People organize in pods. We call them value delivery teams. Some companies call them pods, et cetera, Mm -hmm. where you have a cross cut of people, whether it's front engineer, platform, mobile services that are sitting together with a product owner and the product owner is managing that workflow, managing the backlog, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The managers of the team, <clears throat> they're responsible more for the mentoring, the skills, the architecture, to make sure that for all front-end engineers, we're following certain practices, when teams are working because they're moving very quickly, that they're communicating and removing any blocks or also are aware. And that's enabled us to really see some of the challenges within our flow mm-hmm. and fix them. And uh, to that point, so talking to Innovative, we have um, a, a tool which is really a targeting tool that we use to provide the appropriate offer and communication to customers based on who they are, demographic, et cetera, when they sign in to AOL. Mm-hmm. The technology that we had used to build this is a pretty big piece of technology. When I got there, we were releasing once maybe every two weeks. Now we release maybe four times a day. Wow. So if we find something, and it's a good idea, we want to try it, we, as long as it doesn't take the engineer eight days to build it, if they can build it in a few hours, we can test it today. If it doesn't work, we can take it out. So that gives us the ability really to innovate. So a lot of what I do on the day, day-to-day basis is find those other efficiencies that we can have, mm-hmm. make sure areas that we aren't as successful that we continue to push there. And back to my charisma joke is make sure that I'm working with my business partners, working with my team, and keeping people jazzed about where we're going and what we're doing. Because like any business, there are days where some things don't work and people can be down or frustrated. And you want people to have that support over that hump. Yeah. Okay, great. So let, let me ask you, one of the things that you're widely endorsed for on LinkedIn is Agile, and you talked about some Agile practices in the in the last answer. What, if anything, do you see as being the next step in the evolution of Agile? 
and 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 the reason I ask is because it seems like you get to a point in time where once everybody is doing something, it ceases to have its the competitive advantage maybe that it had before. Yes. Um, so I'm smiling a little bit. The audience can't see me smiling. I'm smiling because I feel that if you went to 100 companies that say they're doing Agile and you ask them how they're doing Agile, none of them would agree with each other on what they were doing. Yeah. So I, I don't know that everybody is doing Agile. Sure. I think a lot of people like to say they are doing Agile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually kind of find myself in that boat too, which is Agile is a set of processes that you can take advantage of to improve how you deliver. But I don't know that it is you follow it programmatically. Mm-hmm. There are probably some people that are cringing listening to this, but it, it there isn't a one size fits all. But there are definitely certain ceremonies, et cetera, that you should have and, and mindset to how you get things done. Sure. Um, I like to to describe Agile as this. Agile is taking a big company and making it work like a startup, where you have the CEO, the CMO, the CTO, and the two interns sitting at the same table at Starbucks. When you want to make a decision, it, you just make that decision. Right. Why? Because you're sitting right there. You can get things done. Decisions happen very quickly. You can make a prioritization conversation or answer some sort of requirement question. When you get larger, it becomes a much more bureaucratic process, and that slows down a business. So the fundamental goal with Agile is to make sure the engineers can just keep consuming work very quickly and that questions are answered immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have seen happen, and this is why I think I get endorsed for Agile because I'm pretty passionate about this. What, what I do and charismatic, I might add. Yeah, thank you. And I'm flattered <laughs> by it. I mean, there's still things I, I know I need to learn on this. One of the things that I see happen, too, is that in big businesses, there are skills that were, um, were needed. And there was an apparatus that was built around managing projects for the way that, old, that software used to be built. Mm-hmm. Software is no longer built that way. And so we have to change how those people are skilled, the tools that they have, how they approach problems. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it's not that people are bad people and don't want to do this. But if you've been doing something for 15 years, 20 years for some people, even more, and now you say, throw all that away, you have to think about it differently. Remember how you had a whole six months of comfort? No, no six months of comfort anymore. All you care about is the next two two weeks. Now, you probably should care a little longer, but next two <laughs> weeks. It's a really big paradigm shift for people. And one of two things happens. You have um, actually, one of three things happens. One, you have the people that are like, I love this, I want to do it, and they become your advocates. Mm-hmm. Then you have the ones that are like, this isn't going to work, this is a fad, we're not doing this, and they, they fight you. And then you have the passive-aggressive ones that will say they like it, but they're scared or something, and they just they don't come along for the ride. And so it's a constant effort to make sure that you're communicating with people. And I've, I pride myself on being a communicator and being transparent. In fact, I probably over-communicate in, in the office. No, even though I will talk about it in every staff meeting, even though I will invite everyone to the stand-ups that we have, even though I will email out all the things that we're planning on doing and get buy-in from my peers and their teams, everywhere I've been where we've done this, I still inevitably hear, we probably should have done more training on this. We probably should have been clear about what we were trying to do. It always happens. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, I, I've kind of relegated my mind and said, okay, that's fine. It's just a normal thing. Yeah. But I think what happens is, it's great. We're going to move to Europe. You're really excited until the day you start packing. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, we're really moving to Europe. <laughs> it's not what I meant, you know. Uh, bon voyage. Yeah. Um, okay, so so let me ask about something we were talking about b- before we came in, and it was uh, the notion of, of, of how you may kind of reshape the workday for some of your employees so that mm-hmm. they have dedicated periods of time that are interruption-free. Um, can you go into that a little bit for listeners and talk about the reason why it's happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to take credit for doing this at AOL. One of my team members uh, had the idea we're into innovation. We're supporting him and, and his team, and it's mm -hmm. now kind of trickled out. Um, I tried this back at PayPal, too, with mixed results. The, the impetus behind it is engineers, when you t stop them from doing what they're doing, it's 15 minutes lost regardless, even if it's a one-minute question, because you take people out of the mindset, because they're really mm -hmm. artists. I know people don't want to hear that, but it's arts. You're, you're, you're figuring out how to do things. You get yourself in a mindset. You have your headphones on, or you're, you're just thinking about it. You don't want to interrupt that creative process. And so in order for us to really get work done, what we want to make sure is that we're not constantly causing these interruptions for our engineers. Mm -hmm. And we're meeting heavy business because we're a big company. And so what we're going to do is for a three-hour stint during the day, we will say, unless you're a manager, because managers, that's their lot in life, they do have to go to these meetings, et cetera, um, you are not to be disturbed. But the way that we'll do it is we'll let the engineers know you don't have to reply to email, you don't have to reply to AIM or Slack, you don't have to answer your phone. If there's an emergency, we know how to reach you. We'll come find you, right? If the phone rings twice or three times in a row, you should pick it up. Right. And that way, they have a period of time where they can get their work done, particularly because we're moving more and more and more um, towards these to, to refine our agile delivery process. And so when you're making commitments to stories, if you get pulled into a meeting that lasts for eight hours, two days in a row, you're not going to meet your velocity will not be what you thought it was going to be. And so we want to make sure that we're protecting our engineers to be able to realize their commitments. Yeah. And, and I would think could be not a bad practice for people in all walks of life to implement. Yeah. I, I, I talked recently about an article that I read in Forbes, and the, you know, the jury's still out on the science behind it. Uh, but the crux of it was that multitasking not only makes you less effective, but may actually cause brain damage. And, and, and again, don't know if the science is right, but it... If it says what what you know neurologists think that it may say, it's that it, it deactivates certain uh, regions of the brain and makes it harder for you to think creatively, think deeply, and come up with you know, deeper solutions to problems because you're constantly under a barrage of um, uh, uh, of things that take away from your that take away your attention from the most important things in your in your job or day to day life. Yeah, I, I will tell you that a lot of companies, we, we try this here too at AOL, it's like make 10% of your time available to thinking, mm -hmm. right, for just that reason. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if the brain damage is covered by my disability. I'll, I'll find out. But, um, <laughs> like, but that 10%, it's hard to do because we, the, particularly if you're in a senior leadership role, the problems that your job is to have problems come in mm -hmm. and figure out how to solve those problems. But with iPhones and with Android devices, the problems, they come in all the time. Yeah, and so you're you're you are basically a firefighter, and when you have to talk about a strategy for a multi-billion-dollar company, you need to make sure that you are prioritizing your time to be able to really think about what has to happen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, is is there anything out there that you're excited about from a technology standpoint? Things like three D printing or beacon technology? Anything that that you're super bullish on? That I'm bullish on. I will tell you, I, I've gone down the whole, I'm a big fan of the 3D printing, et cetera, and I think everyone has really jumped on that mm -hmm. uh, that bandwagon. I did hear something on NPR, I think it was yesterday. My days blend, so it might have been yesterday or the day before, right. where the military is looking at using this as opposed to power bars, so that with all the sensors that are built into um, their uniforms, they can tell, Gil needs more potassium, he needs less salt, and he needs more H2O, whatever it is, and it will then print out a wafer and you eat that wafer and you get exactly what you need. I, they haven't, this is early prototype, so I imagine the flavor is not, <laughs> not good, but they're working on that. So I do think there is a really big market for 3D printing, et cetera. I, I'm really bullish, believe it or not, on just 
the logistics space. And I think it ties to all of this. Mm -hmm. And this is actually one of the reasons why I had joined Taxi Magic. And I still believe that there is an opportunity there. This is the world that I actually see for us in 10 years. I don't think people own cars. I know this sounds very like Elon Musk and that sort of thing, but I don't think people own cars. Maybe it's 15, but let's go with the 10. They don't or own everybody owns a Tesla if it's the Elon Musk. Yeah, or, 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 <laughs> or the government owns a Tesla. Sure, sure. Right? And what sorry, but sorry is, to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, totally fine. And everyone has their, their, their um, calendar on the cloud. So what ends up occurring is Gil has to be at the offices here at 8 o'clock in the morning. You get a, a push notification or a watch notification or your shirt lights up or something along these lines. It says mm -hmm. your car is going to be there in a few minutes. You should get up, take a shower, do what you want to do. I go to the car. The car is intelligent, self-driving. It knows what's going on elsewhere in traffic. So not only is it going to make a good decision about how to get to the office, it also knows, you know what, Gil's got a few extra minutes and there's a person who's late for a meeting because he took too long in the shower, automatically bumps him to the front of the queue. And so the logistics behind a lot of this, I think, are really amazing because it has tremendous implications that I don't think people realize, mm -hmm. um, which are both exciting and dangerous. Right. The exciting thing for me is I think traffic fatalities go down. Traffic jams are a thing of the past. I think the, the cost of ownership for cars goes way down. You don't have to really worry about a lot of this. And you can live in an environment that I think is a lot, um, it's a lot easier to maneuver and get around. The downside is there's millions of jobs that are impacted. The cars don't need as much maintenance because they're being run more effect, you know, operationally. Like it's not like the engine light's on for like six weeks. No, no, the engine light <laughs> is not even on. It goes immediately to the shop and it gets fixed. Yeah. Um, roads aren't worn down as much. You don't need as many traffic lights. You don't need as many signs. It changes fundamentally how things are done. Mm -hmm. And it also changes the model for UPS and others. I really think that's where we're going. And I know people talk about the Internet of Things, et cetera, but I'm really more excited about the, the wired intelligence of, of vehicles and kind of like the logistics of transportation. And I just don't know that people recognize just how much of an impact that would have. Yeah. Okay, great. So so we're getting a little low on time, but I want to try something new out here and take a page out of Jeff Foxworthy's book and uh, have to give a little credit to a guy named Jeff Bishop, who was formerly of PBS. And uh, and we did a, a presentation with Jeff, and, and his idea was, was you might be Agile if. But let's play a little word association game so the listeners out there know whether or not the teams they're working with are truly innovative or if they have a little ways to go. So can you give us a few of your and and you don't have to do it in Jeff Foxworthy voice, but if your team <laughs> blank you might have built an innovative team. Yeah, I'll avoid the accents. I'm calling them <laughs> accents. I did tell you I wanted to be a B-rated actor. I didn't that's why B-rated, not A-rated. <laughs> right. Um, I think if your team disagrees with you. Um, frequently, you might have built an innovative team. And I think if your team asks for forgiveness a lot, although with caution, not being a bad corporate citizen, I think you may have built an innovative team. And I know a lot of leaders don't like this, but I think if you build the appropriate culture, this one's okay. If your team surprises you a lot with things, good surprises, mm -hmm. I think you built an innovative team. And what I mean by that is somebody comes to you and says, all right, check this out. We've completely renovated how we do our performance reviews. This is what we had. Like, and you weren't, it wasn't something you had led. They didn't tell you about it. They just went and they did it, and then they came to you. That's an innovative team. Same thing applies to product. Um, and I think that in a big company, if your team is being recognized by others, not necessarily for being innovative, but for 
being change agents or pioneers, et cetera. You're getting these emails. I love working with this guy. Wow, the energy this person was bringing. Look at how they changed this. Mm -hmm. Then I think you also can have, I, I feel that you might have built an innovative team in that case too. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, great day to close on. Thanks for being a good sport. Uh, I think you have, if the whole uh, AOL thing doesn't work out for you, you have a career as a B-movie actor, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> and thanks for joining us in the, uh, in the studio today, Gil. Some great insights on what it takes to build a high-performing team that thrives on innovation. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Gil House, you can follow him on Twitter at at Orin House. That's at O-R-O-N-H-A-U-S. You can also reach him at gil.house at teamaol.com if you're interested in getting in touch to talk about his experiences building innovative teams at places like AOL, Taxi Magic, PayPal, and Bill Me Later. It's G-I-L-L dot H-A-U-S at teamaol.com. Thanks again to Gil House for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have two more in-studio guests, Brian O and Kanal Shah, both product managers here at Three Pillar, to talk about innovation and the future of payments. The hot and heavy battle currently taking place between Apple Pay and the Merchant Customer Exchange. How we'll all be parting with our hard-earned money five years from now. And whether gold or Bitcoin is more likely to unseat the dollar as the next global currency standard. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.